this episode, we would like to say that in the spirit of reconciliation, that we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to the land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome back for another episode of Spaghettification. I'm Claire Kenyon, the Red Lipped Astro. And I'm Marcus Garrow, the Drunk Astronomer. And our episode this month is jam-packed full. We've got comets aplenty, Uranus is ending retrograde motion, and we have a big chat at the end in in in-depth and shit you should know all about solar cycles, storms, sunspots, and space weather. Now, that one I'm excited for because there's been a lot of stuff happening on the sun lately. Absolutely. We're starting to edge towards a solar maximum. So yeah, hopefully it's pretty exciting, but not too exciting (laughs) as we'll get to later on in the episode. So let's start off with our solar system objects, Mark. The 4th of January, Earth will be at perihelion in its orbit. So I often break down the words for you. Peri is definitely a name, but also Latin for near. And Helion, of course, is the sun. So we're going to be at the point in Earth's orbit where it is closest to the sun, which, as we talked about last episode, is kind of one of those, I guess, anti-evidence for the idea that the elliptical orbit of the Earth causes the seasons. Of course, it doesn't. And in fact, for people in the Northern Hemisphere that are experiencing winter, it's kind of interesting that Earth's at its closest point right now, which is sort of just after the summer solstice for us and the winter solstice for them. So yeah, Earth's going to be closest to the sun at a distance of about 0.98. AU. So AU is the average distance of the Earth to the Sun. So it'll be a little bit closer. And we didn't mention this last episode, Mark, but do you have any idea the percentage of the variation of Earth's distance from the Sun? 5%. It's actually lower. It's only 3%. Wow. So oh, when we're talking, Yeah, very close. But yeah, um, when people talk about it being an elliptical orbit, the fact is it's much closer to a circle than we think about. And, you know, it won't be too different on the 4th of January than it is at other times in the year. But you can just know that and be happy. 19th of January, Uranus is ending retrograde motion. Uh, all those astrologers are going to be upset. Oh, yeah. Well, it's going to yeah. be very important for everyone's lives, of course. Mm. Yes. Totally. Um, Yeah, I'm not going to go outside, but that's nothing to do with Uranus ending retrograde motion. (laughs) (laughs) So basically what that means is that night after night, if you look at Uranus's position in the sky at the same time, up until the 19th of January, Uranus will look like it has been going west through the zodiac. From the 19th of January onwards, it will start going eastwards through the zodiac night after night at the same time. This usually happens with these outer planets a few months after they pass opposition, which is, of course, when the planet is on the opposite side of the Earth to the Sun. And finally, conjunctions Mars and the Moon on the 30th of January. We're finally starting to see Mars back, Mark. Yay. It's awesome. There's a planet I haven't imaged yet because I haven't had a chance to because it's not been up. Well, 2022 is going to be your year. It's the year of Mars. The year of Mars. So from Melbourne, you'll see a Mars and Moon conjunction at 3.38 in the morning, Eastern Daylight Savings Time, and that will be two hours and 52 minutes before the sun. So plenty of time to see that if you're a night owl that's staying up all night, I suppose, or if you're a morning lark that's up super early. It'll be an altitude of about 28 degrees above the eastern horizon before fading to the dawn. So definitely something you can see in the sky 
which is kind of exciting. I checked the box of night out. You checked the box of never sleeps. Well, never sleeps almost. So before we talk about comets, which is our sort of next discussion point, I just thought we'd have a quick chat about naming conventions of comets because we had the month of meteors and now we've got the month of comets. But yeah, so when you look around the names of these comets, you'll notice that they actually follow different naming conventions. Most people know of like Halley's Comet, right? So I think it's Comet 1, isn't it? Halley's Comet was 1. I think so, yeah. yeah one yeah. Halley's yeah. Comet, yeah. So that's one naming convention. And then there's another one, well, we talked about Comet Leonard, which is C2019A1 Leonard. And that's a different naming convention to, for example, what's been used to name Halley. So nowadays we have the, so C for Comet and then a letter, yeah. then, a, then a dash and then the year of discovery. And then we have a letter. Letters. That's right. And then you might have the name of the discovery. Oh, I know what the letters mean. So tell me what they mean. So Comet Leonard C2021. I know the A1 after it means it was discovered on in the first week of 2021 and the first month. Ah, okay. Yeah. I only know that because Comet Man told me. Yeah. So the letters at the start, so you can have P forward slash and then the year. You might have C yep. forward slash and then the year. You might have X forward slash. Yeah. So you've got P, C, X, D, A, I. So what are they for? Now, P is for a periodic comet. So ah. when we talk about periodic comets, we've got to be able to see them again, which means that they need to have an orbital period of less than about 200 years or confirmed observations of more than one perihelion passage. So what that means is we need to have confirmed that we've seen it more than once when it nears the sun. So that's P, right? So yep. Comet Halley's a P, and one of our comets coming up in a minute will be a P as well. In fact, two of our comets. C indicates a non-periodic comet. We haven't seen it before, or we haven't seen it more than once, or it's not coming around again, okay? So Comet C2021A1 Leonard is a non-periodic comet. So if you remember last episode, we talked about Comet Leonard. It's been on its trajectory to us for 35,000 years. We're not going to see Leonard again. So that's a C, not a P. So if you've got X and then forward slash and then the year, you've got a comet where no orbit can be calculated. So usually they're historical comets. They're things that are sort of way back in historical documents that we can't really calculate an orbit for. And what's really interesting about some of those is that they go from, you know, being historical comets and then we, we once we work out the orbits of, a, of one that we do, know that we've just found we backtrack and we go oh we think this is the one that they saw in whatever ce or whatever d indicates a periodic comet that's disappeared comets do break up they do disintegrate as they go around the sun because the sun heats them up which is why you see the tail so unfortunately when you do see a tail on a comet it means it's kind of dying losing part of itself yeah it's dying in order to give you this beautiful show wow blended <laughs> Has been doing that. Yes. Land's been breaking up and yeah. it's not going to be around again. Nope. <laughs> so if you do get to see it, you should. <laughs> but yeah, so D has broken up. For an example, you've got Lexel's Comet, which is D forward slash 1770 L1. And Comet Shoemaker Levy 9, which of course, that's the one that went into Jupiter, wasn't it? It is, yes. So I'm pretty sure that disappeared. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's coming back. So A actually indicates an object that we thought was a comet, but it's actually a minor planet. So this has been unused for a long time, and it actually first applied in 2017 for Oumuamua. So that is A forward slash 2017 U1, right? So that's got the A in there. Now it's used for asteroids on comet-like orbits. So orbits that look like comets, but actually when we look at them, they're actually asteroids. And finally, I is an interstellar object. So this is actually for the reclassification of that asteroid that we just said, which I'm not going to re <laughs> There aren't many with that classification. But, yeah, so we see Ps and Cs a lot and we do see Ds a bit. 
bit because, well, once they're gone, they're gone. So that's what they get downgraded to, I suppose. So all of the comets sort of fit into that. Originally, we just called comets after the year they were observed. An example of that would be the Great Comet of 1680, right? That has no other name. That's Have it. they not renamed it? I don't think so. They have to be able to know what it is. So oh, whether it's okay. periodic or to associate it with something seen today or be able to calculate its orbit. So they can't really rename it. They don't know what it was. And they don't even no. really know if it's a comet or not. Yeah. Yeah. Then we've got things like Comet Hale-Bopp. So those comets were named after the discoverers. We also used to name it not only after the discoverer, but after the person who confirmed it. So the second time it came around, if you confirmed it as the previous one, then you'd actually have your name added to it. And then we had a scheme that gave codes in the order that comets passed perihelion. So when do they get to the closest point in the sun? So, for example, Comet 1972 or II, and then we started to move into the C forward slash 2012 blah, blah, blah system. Yeah, so that's why all the comets have different naming conventions. But nowadays we stick to the letter forward slash year letter with a number, which you're right, indicates when in the year it was found. And then often you'll have a name, sometimes in brackets, of the person that's either found it, calculated its orbit, or confirmed it. So what comets we got, do you know? Well, we've got Leonard, obviously. That's been the big popular famous fun one over the last month or so. Yeah, and you can still see Leonard up until about... 10th of Jan? Yeah, yeah. assuming it hasn't... Sort if of... it hasn't destroyed itself. <laughs> yeah, so it's, yeah. it's giving us a good show, but at what cost? Live fast, die young. Yeah, exactly. All comets are doing that, I suppose. But yeah, you can see that just after 10pm in the southwest, and it's only just above the southwest horizon until about the 10th of Jan. See it or miss out, basically. Yeah. yeah. Yes. We've got Comet Cole. Yeah, so 104P Cole. So the P, of course, means, as we said before, periodic. Actually comes around less than six years. So 5.9 years we see this comet. That will reach perihelion on the 12th and it will be the brightest on the 18th of January. Happy birthday, Mum. This comet is reaching its brightest on your birthday on the 18th of Jan. And it will be 1.08 AU from the sun, so a little bit more than Earth's orbit. And it will, be, it will come 0.65 of Earth's orbit to Earth. So be 0.65 AU from Earth. It's pretty um, close. Yeah, it's not too bad at all, actually. I mean, I saw some of the photos from Leonard when it was, I think, four AU away, which is quite a way. Mm. Do we know what mag that's going to get to? Brightness, they reckon it'd be about magnitude nine. So you need a good scope for that one. Yeah, definitely. And a dark sky site. And a dark sky. Not a binoculars one. No, probably not, no. So that's Comet Cole. And we've got Comet Leonard, as we said. All January, you've got Comet 19P Borelli. Yes. So that's one of the older conventions to name that comet. So it's the 19th periodic comet found, and it was found by Borelli. That will also probably only approach magnitude 9, and its brightest will be on the 20th of January. So actually, Cowell and Borelli will both be visible in Cetus, which is in the northwest and they'll both be visible all January. So if you've got a good view to the northwest and a good scope and a dark sky, (laughs) you might be able to see these two comets in a similar place in the sky. Very late in January, Borelli actually moves into Pisces and then it becomes not visible after January. But it's better to see it in early Jan because it's higher in the sky. Interestingly enough, just like Cole, it's actually quite a short period comet. It's only got a period of 6.85 years. So it's quite regular. It'll reach its perihelion on February 1. And actually, there's one other thing about Borelli, and that is that there was a spacecraft in 2001 called Deep Space One, and it was launched to test new equipment in space at the time. And it was actually the first spacecraft to use iron propulsion rather than, you know, chemical-powered rockets. So they were testing all of that. Its main mission was to fly past an asteroid and have a look, but it actually flew past Comet Borelli twice and added to some of the sort of science gains of the mission, which was kind of cool. It's like a bonus mission. Yeah, exactly. It's like a bonus level. Yeah, I mean, it failed at some things, but they were really happy just to be able to get some science out of it. <laughs> Got something. <laughs> Woohoo! Well 
so moon feature, Mark. We've talked about Tycho before, which is a nice big crater with ejector rays. What have you chosen for the moon feature this month? I chose Copernicus, a lovely, lovely impact crater. So tell me about Copernicus. Why did you choose it? Uh, because it's a crater that I have not spent much time on and want to learn a bit more about. I've been all over Tycho myself. I've been everywhere. An now. imaging and a visual observing point of view. But Copernicus is like its poor little brother. Aww. It's like, oh, it's Copernicus. That's pretty cool, but it's not Tycho. Arguably like, Copernicus did more for our sort of knowledge of the solar system and how everything works than Tycho. <laughs> the person did, yes, but the crater is not as popular. Actually, on that, did you know why it's called Copernicus? Uh, uh, because it was named after Nicholas Copernicus. It was. And it was formed during the Copernican period. Yeah, but it wasn't actually named after him because the person thought he was great. The guy that was naming prominent features on the moon was doing it in 1651, right? Name was Giovanni Riccioli, and he basically <laughs> drew these telescopic maps of the moon. So he named all the prominent features on the moon and made a moon map, and he named heaps of them after himself and his pupil Grimaldi. But he didn't really like Copernicus, and he didn't believe Copernicus's theory of the Earth going around the sun. He actually believed that Earth was stationary and it was geocentric, so everything revolved around the Earth. So he actually believed that, and he wasn't a subscriber to the Copernican theory. And so what he did was he put Copernicus into the ocean of storms, which is where this crater is. But the problem is, of course, Copernicus turned out to be correct. And the crater itself is incredible. Photos of it are amazing. And they some are. of the science that's come out of there is pretty incredible as well. So he's accidentally elevated Copernicus. They call it the uh, monarch of the moon, this crater. He's elevated him to like a godlike status by mistake. <laughs> Calm as a bitch, hey? It totally is. <laughs> but yeah, so Copernicus, tell me a bit about it. Well, it is visible using binoculars and because it's on the moon, uh, light pollution is not really a problem now, is it? It's also one of the really good ones to watch sunset and sunrise on the moon over. Yes. So when the terminus is close to Copernicus. Yes, yeah, the detail. It's really good to watch the light rays go across because it's such a, a nice, deep and big crater. Yeah, it's got a lot of detail. And that's one thing that the next few months, when it comes into a full moon again, I'm going to spend a bit of time on that particular target myself. Not a full moon. You'll be blinded. No, that's what moon filters are for, me. Oh, you've got a moon filter. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because just for the record, if anybody hasn't used a telescope before to look at a full moon. Oh, it's so bright. Yeah, if you do not have a moon filter, you can't see anything for quite a while. Yeah, you can <laughs> see the moon in, in great detail when you're looking through the telescope. But then the moment you pull your eye off, there you are. You're literally blinding the eye you're looking at for, for quite a few minutes. You've got one eye that you can't see anything yep. out of. So Copernicus, 90 kilometres across, right? Yes. Well, 93. 93 kilometres across, 3.8 kilometres deep. Quite sizable. It's a very deep Yeah, crater. yeah, nice deep one, yep. It is, it is. So it has a hexagonal form to it as well. And when you look at the images of it, it's not really circular as such. It has a very odd shape to create oh. that circle shape. That's pretty cool. It is. So Copernicus is also quite striking and obvious on the moon's surface because it is quite bright. Yes. And the reason it's quite bright, we talked about it, I think, in episode Episode one, but essentially the really bright stuff on the moon tends to be the stuff that's been exposed relatively recently. And we also have evidence that Copernicus was one of the more recent craters made because its ejector rays actually overlap. So they're on top of other craters' ejector rays. So, you know, just a simple layering stratigraphy deduction there. But yeah, so the rays go for like 805 kilometers, which yeah, is quite huge. Large. Isn't and it? Yeah. And to go with this structure you were talking about, the shape of it, Copernicus's ejector rays aren't really nice, regularly spaced. 
they are kind of a little bit more random. So Tycho is beautifully spaced out, you know, gorgeous. It just looks like someone's just gone splat and it's gone out equally in all directions. But Copernicus's one is kind of less ordered. It's not as nice and even to look at. But yeah, it's quite young. They reckon it's about 800 million years old. It's pretty old, isn't it? No, it's pretty young. Really? It's young, young, young. 800 million years is a long time. 800 million years. It's old for us. Like, I'm not going to get anywhere near it. And frankly, the way my body's going, I'm glad I'm not going to get anywhere near that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So Copernicus is 800 million years old, which is, you know, old for us, but actually really young for the moon. It comes after the late heavy bombardment, which was a period in the solar system where there was lots of stuff hitting stuff, which you can probably work out from the name, heavy bombardment. But yeah, so this is quite young. Have we spoken about the central peaks? Well, there are three central peaks pretty much in the centre of Copernicus, and they're around about 1.2 kilometres high. Uh, They have valleys between them, and infrared observations suggest that they're primarily composed of mafic form of olivine. I do love olivine. I have been olivine hunting before. Have you? Yes. Yeah, that's the gemstone that we call peridot. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. it comes out of volcanoes. It does, and it's a beautiful mineral, yellow, yellowy green. Yes. Sometimes has deep. Like an olivey green. It can be. Colour. But it just depends, I think, as well on the balance of iron and magnesium in it. But, yeah, so you're right about the – it's not like it has a single mountain in the middle that's just a peak it has a bunch of them you're right so there's little peaks and groups and things and the actual floor of the crater is actually quite level and it hasn't been flooded with lava so it's not like some of the other ones where you get that Mm. kind of like rebound mountain in the middle with the lava filling the base of the crater and if there had been lava in there those mountains would not be visible i dare say yeah you're probably right yeah or at least they'd look a lot smaller the geology of copernicus has actually been quite important to lunar science as well you know we're talking about shoemaker levy nine the comet before yes so that was named after gene shoemaker and so gene shoemaker and another guy called robert hackman had a huge impact on planetary science so he was really deep into it there's a crater near arizona that he showed to be an asteroid he's got his sort of fingerprints all the way through planetary science and evolution of earth and the moon and all the solar system and anyway so he and robert hackman gene shoemaker and robert hackman looked at stratigraphy of the moon which is layers right i think that's latin for layers like on earth for example you can go and have a look at like a rock cutting and you can see that you know you've got sand sediments you know when it was above water or you might have some limestone and you might have some silt or something you know and you can sort of deduce the history of the region based on the stratigraphy and the layers and so piecing that all together and unpacking the history of the region is kind of fun it's part of geology but basically Gene Shoemaker and Robert Hackman were looking at the stratigraphy of the moon and they actually were looking at overlapping layers here and he worked out that these ejector rays from different craters have a different albedo so an albedo different to libido albedo is basically how bright something is how well it reflects light right so things with a high albedo are bright and white and things with a low albedo like some asteroids are quite dark and hard to see almost black copernicus craters ejector rays aren't really that visible compared to some others like aristarchus and they actually worked out that these rays fade over time which was actually really really important for working out the age of overlapping craters because the moon's just oh, absolutely yeah. pockmarked it's like you know a teenager's it face cheese face pimple. it's got so much and also micrometeorites erode the edges and everything like that so it just complicates everything you've got solar wind coming down all the time and space weathering so looking at these rays really helped establish a timeline for the moon this is before they had samples they think that apollo 12 where they landed they actually got samples that came from ejecta from copernicus which is which is awesome yes yeah 
Did you know Sidereal Trading have a strong emphasis on quality products and service-oriented sales and technical stuff? But wait, there's more. Sidereal Trading's key strength is their ability to work closely with customers to achieve the results they desire. So whether your interests lie in nightscape photography, panoramas, wide-field Milky Way or deep-sky nebula and galaxies, Sidereal Trading can supply the astrophotography equipment you need and a free set of steak knives. Visit www.siderialtrading.com.au. Steak knives not included. As promised, for the new year, a mythical beast known as the unicorn, Monoceros. That's our constellation of the month. Monoceros actually is a mythical beast which comes from monos in Greek and keros, which is horn. So it means single or only one horn. <laughs> You know, the Monoceros isn't actually originally a unicorn, right? No, what was it originally? In Pliny the Elder's natural history, it was a creature with the body of a horse, head of a stag with no antlers, and the feet of an elephant and the tail of a wild boar, and a big black horn in the middle of its forehead. I like that better than a unicorn. Which is two cubits, you know, about one metre or three feet in length. They couldn't catch it alive and all of the power of this beast was in its horn. So it would fall on its horn, which would basically save it. And yeah, basically Monoceros isn't a constellation that's in the Zodiac. It's not one that was in the Almagest. It first appeared on a globe by Petrus Plantius in 1612. He was a Dutch map maker, a cartographer, and also a man of the church, a clergyman. <laughs> I'm a man of the church. It was basically just created to fill in the area between Orion and Hydra which are quite prominent and bright constellations. It's not actually that bright. It's hard to see, but it's kind of cool. It's a new year. It's magical. Yeah, there's not much going on in it, really, is there? Oh, there's a bit going on. There's a little bit. It's the 35th largest constellation, so not that big, and it takes up about 1.17% of the night sky. The stars aren't that bright either. Yeah, I think they're all Mag 4 and above, aren't they? Yeah, Mag 3.9 is yeah. the brightest. Yeah. There's a couple of Mag 3.9s and the rest are over 4s into 5s and 6s. But there are seven stars that make up the main constellation. But when Hipparchus, which is a satellite that went through and catalogued all the stars, that it could see, um, it found about 1,444 stars. And they reckon that on a really good night, you might be able to see up to about 162 stars within that constellation. Oh, challenge accepted. You know what? I might do a wide field of it. When I look at it, all I see is like a forked stick, like the pronged stick. It just looks like that to me. Barbecue prongs. It's not one of those constellations that looks like what it is, you know? It's not that boring. Okay. No. So- no. Well, it's got uh, a messier object. That's correct. Messier 50, which is an open yep. star cluster. Yep. Which is about 3,000 light years away from Earth. Yep. It's got our favourite Christmas tree cluster. Yeah. And the Cone Nebula. Yeah. Hubble's Variable Nebula. I mean, it's actually got some cool stars in it as well. Also, by the way, Monocerotus is the Latin version of Monocerus. So Monocerotus is Latin and Monocerus is Greek. So, you know, when we call it Monocerus, it's the constellation. And then a lot of the stars within this constellation are called Monocerotus. So you've got Beta Monocerotus. You've got Zeta Monocerotus, Delta Monocerotus, but no Omicron. (laughs) Beta Monocerotus is a triple star system, which is really cool. They're all bright, big stars. So the primary star A has about 870% of our sun's mass. Which is huge. That's a lot. It's about 3,200 times brighter than our sun. Wow. (laughs) And more than three times hotter than our sun. It spins super fast with a rotational velocity of just under 350 kilometres per second. So it's spinning super fast. That's fast, fast, isn't it? Yeah. And the secondary star within this triple star system has about 620% of our sun's mass, 1,600 times brighter 
It's also super fast spinning as well. So that little system is really cool and super intense. It's got what's called a cataclysmic variable, which I love the name of. They just sound so doom and gloom. Is that the red super giant? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's very famous. It's quite dim. So it's an apparent magnitude of 15.74. It's about 20,000 light years away from Earth. But the apparent magnitude varies from 6.75 to 15.6. So it really varies. Astrophotographers love this object too, you know. Yeah, when it's in its outburst phase, it is bright and it's amazing to take pictures of. When it's quiet, it's hard to see. You know, 15.6, 15.7 magnitude's hard. It was discovered in 2002 when it was having an outburst and it was thought to be one of the largest stars discovered at the time. They still sort of haven't really worked out what happened, but there was what's called a light echo. So all the dust around just gets sort of lit up by this star and the star just grows huge huge but it doesn't push out its outer layers right it has got smaller over time but actually increased in temperature and luminosity which often happens so as things compress under gravity things are forced together a bit more and you often get heating up and luminosity it's currently 15,000 times more luminous than the sun and a radius of 380 times the sun's mass back in that jan 6 2002 increased by a factor of 10,000 in one day for its brightness yeah so no wonder they love it <laughs> like that's huge. Be like quickly run out and get a picture of it before <laughs> it dies back again. Yeah. That's V838 Monocerotus. That's the cataclysmic variable's name. It makes Monoceros interesting. Oh, there's lots of things. There's like 25 exoplanets within Monoceros as well. Some interesting ones in there. So there's Corot 7, found by the Corot spacecraft. It's found a star that's smaller and less massive than our sun. So about 91% of the sun's mass, 82% of the sun's radius. And there are two confirmed planets around it, which are super-Earths. One of these super-Earth planets has between 2.3 and 8.5 Earth masses. And the other one has between 8.5 and 13.5. So big, but not as sort of big as Jupiter, which is just amazing. To be able to look into, you know, another place and find these planets of these sizes is is so cool. It's also got something called Plaskett's Star, which is a spectroscopic binary. One of the most massive binary star systems known. 100 solar masses. Yeah, 100 times the mass of the sun in this binary system. It's amazing. The first one has about 5,400% of our sun's mass. And then the other one has about 5,600% of our sun's mass. Just small. Yeah, just tiny, very boring, yes. The component B, the second star, is also very fast spinning, so its rotational velocity is about 300 kilometres per second, which basically makes me feel dizzy just thinking about it. (laughs) It needs a roller coaster ride. Hang on for your life. Yeah, and finally I'm going to say there's a black hole in Monoceros, which is stellar mass, they think, so it's surrounded by an accretion disk, which is created because it has a companion, so it's pulling material off its stellar companion. It goes into an accretion disk, which falls onto the black hole. So that black hole is called A062. 20-00, also designated as V616 Monocerotus. It's pretty close to us. Yes, it is. One of the closest, yeah. Yeah, one of the closest black holes known to Earth. It's basically pulling material off a K-type star companion and this disc heats up and glows really brightly and putting out a whole lot of visible light and X-rays that we've actually seen. So that's pretty cool. So it has our Nebula of the Month in it. Ah, yes, our Nebula of the Month, which is just coming into season, isn't it? All the astrophotographers are getting very excited. I've already started seeing images of it starting to appear and I'm looking at them and I'm going, I wonder if, I wonder if I can. It is absolutely stunning. We are, of course, talking about the Rosette Nebula. Caldwell 49. 
Yeah, and it's got this absolutely gorgeous cluster in the inside of it as well, which I think is NGC... 2244. Yeah, 2244. You've got this rosette nebula, this beautiful layered, very red H2 region, so ionised hydrogen region, which is basically lit up from this cluster in the centre of these beautiful stars in NGC 2244. And if you look at some of the pictures that are from Chandra, the X-ray observatory... Oh, they are stunning. They're absolutely gorgeous. They are... You wouldn't even believe that they were real pictures. They look like somebody's gone and photoshopped a whole bunch of stuff together, you know, like they've made it up. I was going to say, it's almost like someone's painted it. The detail is just insane. The Rosette Nebula is made up of five different NGC catalogued items. Four of them are different nebulous regions. So it's got NGC 2237, NGC 2238, NGC 2239, NGC 2246 are all different discoveries. And the first one you just mentioned there, the NGC 2237, is to the side of the Rosette Nebula. And they originally only found 36 stars in there, but Chandra X-ray has looked basically through the dust and found some very, very young stars in there with lots of dust and they've detected an outflow because, you know, as stars are born, they end up with these huge stellar winds and they blow this dust away and looking at how these pillars and stuff were created. So they think that 2244 formed first and then you had the expansion of this Rosette Nebula and then that actually triggered NGC 2237, which is to the side. So as the stellar wind blows and it blows the gas and the dust, it causes local compression in other areas and you often see star formation and other star clusters like NGC 2237 starting, so being born because of the birth of another cluster nearby. It's like, you know, when one pregnant woman in her group of friends suddenly just, you know, infects the rest of them and they all get pregnant. Is that how it works? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. We learn everything on this podcast, don't we? <laughs> It's science. It's magic. (laughs) So within the Rosette Nebula, you've got a couple of O-type stars, which are the big, bright, hot blue ones, and they are HD 46223 and HD 46150, and they're basically mostly responsible for blowing this big bubble of gas out from the Rosette Nebula and ionising all that gas around, which we talked about last time. It's essentially just electrons getting excited, yeah. getting off the couch and getting back on the couch. Having a house party. Yeah. So we get this ionised gas, this beautiful H2 gas. It's just a beautiful region to image for sure. I'm going to give it a go myself. I figure if I can, from my backyard, image NGC 1788 with my tiny, tiny little gear, then I could probably do rosette as well. Well, while you're doing that, you can appreciate the fact that some of the Chandra images also show this X-ray glow. Mm. It's not very strong. It's quite diffuse and it's between the stars in this bubble, so in the middle, and they reckon the plasma in there is between 1 and 10 million Kelvin. So plasmas in H2 regions are usually 10,000 Kelvin, but this is super heated and they think it's because it's been shock heated by these O-type stars in the centre. So while you're taking an image of that and looking at that, Mark, just appreciate that this is hot stuff, right? This is, you know, 1 to 10 million Kelvin. That's insane. I know. It just (laughs) blows your mind. It gets to that point where it's just too much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt signed into law on April 22nd, 2019, making the Rosette Nebula the official state astronomical object. I actually had a look around after that for other official state astronomical objects and I couldn't find anything else. So nobody has followed the lead of Governor Kevin Stitt in 2019 to nominate an official state astronomical object. I can't imagine why. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, so our star cluster of the month, actually star clusters, and there's not a lot to say about these, but I just thought they were really cool. For a long time there, people thought that NGC 2451 was just a really nice single star cluster, but it's not. It's more than one. It is more than one. Very hard to distinguish, I suppose, when you're just putting a telescope at them. But yeah, it's basically one behind another. Yes, 600 light years away and 1,200 light years away. Yeah, we've got NGC 2451A (laughs) at 600 light years. And then behind that, you've got NGC 2451B, which is at 1,200 light years. And they're both open clusters and they're both really quite pretty. Don't have a huge amount to say about them, but definitely worth looking at, Mark, when you're out at the dark sky side. I reckon I could probably get those from the backyard. Yeah, right. Yeah. And how would you go about distinguishing which ones were? No idea. You'd have to probably use spectra. Actually, you know what? There is a website that you can load your astro images into and it'll... ID everything? Yeah, I think there's some stuff you've got to do and then it's able to ID the stars. Therefore, you'd be able mm. to determine which ones are from which cluster. Sure, but like in the beginning, how did we know that there are different clusters, different distances? What uh, you normally do is take spectra Yeah. and you would look at emission or absorption lines yeah. in the spectra and then you look to see if they're redshifted and also to see if they are related. So it's an open cluster. So probably all born in the same sort of time and you'd be looking for distinct signatures of the two different clusters saying, oh, that's one group and that's one group. Well, there's a challenge for me because do you know what? I've got a spectrograde. Do you? Yeah. I reckon I could do it myself. But so NGC 2451 has about 40 stars in it. And the brightest of them is C. Puppis, the yellow giant of magnitude 3.6. This, I guess, double cluster, which to all intents and purposes, when you look at it on the sky, is going to just look like one cluster, is actually almost visible with the naked eye. So definitely a worthy binoculars or telescope target. So it has C. Puppis, which is a yellow giant, uh, magnitude 3.6. It's the one generally in the middle of the images that people take of this. Yeah. And it has a spectral type B8. And the age of that is about 36 million years, which actually isn't that old. And if you remember back to the moon stuff we were talking about. It's not as old as the 800 million years that uh, Copernicus is. It's a baby. Yeah. So it was born between the time of a crater being made on our moon and us now. So actually way closer to our time now than to that crater on the moon being blasted. Between dinosaurs and us. Yeah. I mean, 65 million years ago was what, I guess, some of the dinosaurs. Some of them. But yeah, so this star is actually heading away from us at 26 kilometers per second as well. We must smell or something because it's getting on out of here. <laughs> Speak for yourself. I deodorized today, so it can't be me. Oh, well, maybe it is me. Sorry, guys. I smell. <laughs> So our hard spot challenge targets, Mark, we've got two. We do. One on the 15th of January will be Comet C 2019 L3 Atlas. So now we know what those letters mean. It's a comet with orbital parameters calculated but not periodic. So, well, it's been observed in 2019 for the first time, so I would suggest that it hasn't been observed for the second time. Yes. Um, You're looking at a magnitude of 9.7. It's not going to be easy. Where are we going to find it in the sky? So you'll find it in Gemini. Mid to late January will be best for this comet as it rises above the northern horizon in the constellation of Gemini. It makes its closest approach to the sun at a distance of 3.55 AU, which is 3.55 times the distance from the Earth to the sun. Uh, So it kind of doesn't get too close in, does it? No, it doesn't get super close. But if you want a challenge, that's one target. And another target, we love our asteroids. Often asteroids are quite dark, but asteroid 7 Iris or Iris, 
I've actually got a friend whose mum's name's Iris, and it's definitely pronounced Iris, but I'm going to call it Iris. So asteroid 7 Iris is at opposition on the 14th of January, which of course is on the other side of the Earth from the Sun. So a great time to observe asteroids. And Iris is actually the large main belt asteroid, and it actually has quite a high albedo. So we talked about that before. Brightness. And that's basically surface brightness. Exactly. So what's its mag likely to be? Do we know? Well, its average magnitude at opposition is about 7.8. So easier to see than Comet Atlas. Absolutely. Easier to see than Comet Atlas. It's about the magnitude of Neptune. So you can see it with binoculars at most oppositions. So you can probably see it. Worth having a look for. Yeah, so it's actually quite bright. It's the fourth brightest object in the asteroid belt after Vesta, Ceres, and Pallas. At opposition, it's actually brighter than Pallas because Pallas is a little bit darker. From 14th of Jan. Yep, asteroid hunting. I know I won't see that from Melbourne, but I am heading again up to the good old ducks. I should just bloody move there, hey? (laughs) You should. Never come back. And I'll be up there on, (laughs) I think it's the weekend of the 20th of Jan, so just after the 14th. So it'll be close to opposition. Yeah. Yeah. so Probably still worth it. I might give that a go there as well, see how I go. I think we should start asking our listeners to report back to us messages, comment on our posts and let us know what they've seen from our Hard to Spot Challenge. Have they had a go at it? Yeah, definitely. I'd love to hear some of the challenges and triumphs. And failures. And yes, miseries of our Hard to Spot Challenges. So with our astrophotography competition, we are continuing with the cycle of one every three months, Mark. Yes, we are. So NGC 1788 is still the go-to. Final month. But this is the last month, Jan 31st. That one will be over, done and dusted. Entries in by that date. You can put your entries either to instagram yep or you can email us at spaghettificationpodcast at gmail.com message on facebook message us on facebook and we'll give you our email (laughs) you can message your image through on facebook oh true and you can also send us a dropbox link or a google drive link or anything all those fun things we can go and take it we'll pop it up on our instagram yep and mark's currently just revamping the site to include voting the ability to vote yeah yes and the prize for that boomstick astro boy glass and I think I might be a good prize giver and I might throw in a nice can of beer. What that is, I don't know. But it'll be astronomy themed because it just has to be. Oh, there are so many good ones. There's a new one from Ether Brewing called Event Horizon. Oh. It's a porter and it's quite tasty. Right, so I think it's time for our in-depth discussion. Today we are going to talk about solar cycles, storms and sunspots. Solar flares, coronal mass ejections, things like that. Yeah, 100%. Why are we talking about this? Well, you might remember late last year, Mark, there were a whole lot of aurorae that were sighted even right up in northwestern Victoria and as far south as Devon in England. And people were just producing these beautiful pictures of aurorae in the skies in very, very southern and northern, depending on the hemisphere, latitudes where you don't normally see auroras. You normally see auroras near the polar circles or the Arctic and Antarctic circles. So these auroras were because our sun is slowly ramping itself up to what we call a solar maximum in 2025. And so we thought maybe we'd prepare everybody. Do you know what's really cool about that? The last time we were in a solar maximum, the only real way to capture these aurora when they came would have been with proper, decent, high-grade equipment, you know, proper digital SLR cameras that back then would have been a lot more expensive than they are now. And what I noticed is the ones that came through late last year was that a lot of the images that I saw were taken with just a phone attached to a tripod and just short-time exposures from down at the beach and you could see the aurora. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Well, it's just going to open it up to a lot more people. And people were saying they saw it with their eyes too. Oh, yeah, it was really bright. 
Yeah, yeah it's really pretty big bright. One. A lot of the time you don't see aurora so well with your eyes. No. But, but this no. time, yeah, definitely they did. But I think that the next lot of aurora that we're going to get when they come through, um, the quality of images of capturing these aurora are just going to get better and better and better. Yeah, absolutely. So where do these aurora come from? Well, essentially they can be uh, pinpointed back down to the activity of the sun. Now the sun goes through a couple of different cycles, but the one that we're going to talk about today is the 11-year cycle. This current sun cycle began in 2019. It will peak in 2025 and then go down to what we call a solar minimum another five and a half years after that. It's not always exactly 11 years, so it varies to just under 10 years to just over 12 years. So it's not completely 11 years bang on the dot how we'd normally think about a cycle. And we actually, a lot of the time, we can project when the maximum is going to be and when the minimum is going to be, but we actually typically work out where we are in the cycle by plotting the number of sunspots. And that might be a bit weird because you'd think that as a solar cycle is ramping up, that everything would get hotter and more exciting on the sun, right? Which it does, but the surface of the sun is about 5,500 Celsius-ish. The umbra, which is the very dark part of a sunspot, is about 3,000 to 4,500 Kelvin, which is about 2,700 to 4,200 degrees Celsius. So these sunspots are actually cooler. The darker sunspots are actually cooler than the very, very bright hot sun. And so it sort of sounds a bit counterintuitive that the more sunspots we see, the more active the sun is, right? Yes. So obviously these sunspots are more than meets the eye. They're basically the iceberg of what's happening in the sun. Do you know what causes a solar cycle, like what it basically comes down to? I have absolutely no idea, but what I do know is that this current solar cycle is starting slower than they expected. The activity on the sun is not as high as was expected. Yeah, it's extremely hard to actually anticipate because we don't have a great model of how the sun works. So you think that we know how the closest star to us works really well. And we do to first order. You know, we know about fusion in the core and all that sort of thing. And we can tell you about the life cycle and what we expect in the next, you know, couple of billions of years. But when it comes down to the day to day or the year to year, even century to century, it's actually not that easy to say what's going on inside the sun and then also to predict what's going to happen. A lot of the predictions we make from the sun are based on visual observations. So as I was saying before, when we look at sunspots, which are on the photosphere, we're looking for dark spots on the sort of yellowy photosphere. Also using seismic, basically sound waves, looking at how sound waves travel through the sun. Much the same in Earth where we can look at how an earthquake travels or the sound travels through materials through the Earth's surface. You can basically do that on the sun as well. And we've definitely had a look at the interior of the sun using this method. So satellites have been using Doppler shift of the sort of quaking on the surface of the sun and how it travels around the sun in order to try and work out what's underneath the surface. When I say surface, I don't mean solid <laughs> surface, obviously, right? Like it's really, really hot. It's a plasma. It's not solid. Can't so it's not really a it. surface surface. Yeah, yeah. Like if you could walk on it, you couldn't walk on it. <laughs> no, yeah. no. Well, if you could, you couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So basically what we think happens is, so the sun obviously has nuclear fusion happening in the middle, which generates a lot of heat and that heat has to make its way to the surface and that makes the sun itself really hot, right? Incidentally, it's actually not the hottest at the surface. It's actually hotter in what's called the corona. It's got a higher temperature in the corona. So it's not actually heat, it's actually the speed of the particles whizzing around. And the corona is the very outer atmosphere. Anyway, so the surface of the sun is really, really hot plasma. 
and the heat has got a cycle from the center out to the surface, right? Yep. And so we think that there's these big convection currents. You know, we have convection currents like ocean currents on the earth, for example. And so it's a bit like a conveyor belt. And in our microwaves. Yeah. Well, convection just happens even in a room, right? It it's does, like yes. when I go upstairs in my two-story place, it's often quite a bit warmer upstairs than it is downstairs, which is okay in winter. The summer if I'm downstairs and it's yeah. okay in winter if I'm upstairs. It's that whole idea that, you know, heat rises and I'm going to get people writing in going, "Heat is not a thing." It's a process that's correct right there's no such thing as heat right i oh, know there's no such thing as heat but warmer air rises and cooler air falls, falls. Yes. essentially to first order so that's called convection right yes. as air heats up for example it rises and as it cools down it falls, falls. and we see it in weather patterns all the time right so you get these fronts you see it in architecture as well um oh dear getting creating cross flow ventilation and airflow in houses trying to have higher windows that open them and lower windows open to create convection or airflow to push mm -hmm. that hot air out. So there are a lot of yeah, Middle Eastern okay. countries that have buildings where they'll have a centre spire that's built twice the height of the building and it has an opening at the top and the whole idea of that is because they're in such hot climates, it pushes that hot air out of the building and it becomes a natural air conditioner. There's definitely energy coming off the yes. sun. So it's got to get out of the core somehow. And we think it's through these convective processes, which is just that cycle. The hot stuff goes out and then it gets emitted from the surface and then it cools down and falls back in again. And then it heats back up. Yep. It happens in the earth as well in terms of like the mantle does that as well. We think there are some convective currents and all that sort of stuff. But the difference with the sun is that essentially it's all these charged particles, right? It's not like it's solid molecules and stuff like we have on earth. It's charged particles. And whenever you start moving charged particles, you start to get magnetic fields. I don't know if you've ever seen the magnetic field of the earth yes. when it's drawn. Yeah, yeah, I've seen The basic yeah. one. I'm not talking about like the NASA, look how complicated earth one is. No, no, no. Your basic high school book science. Yeah, bar yeah, magnet yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you've got the bar magnet with the north and south and you've got the lines coming out the north and going up the south in the sun it doesn't look like that at all it's absolutely nuts it's crazy and sunspots seem to actually appear in pairs with reverse polarity so we get magnetic field lines basically entering and exiting the sun's surface at heaps of places and they tend to be related to sunspots so you've got a whole lot of really weird tangled magnetic field lines that come out of a sunspot and then they go into another sunspot so what you're saying is if you're looking at the sun and you see a sunspot and there's only one sunspot, that means somewhere else on the sun that yeah, you can't absolutely. see there's another one. Yeah. All right, they can be pairs, okay. But the thing is, this 11-year cycle is actually when the sun flips its magnetic field. So the Earth doesn't flip its magnetic field that often, although it does flip the magnetic field. We can see uh, records of it in magnetic materials, for example, on the ocean floor where lava has been squeezing out over many years. We see reversals of poles in those rocks. But the sun actually reverses its poles every 11 years. Flip-flop. Yeah, flip-flop all the flip -flop. time. So it's incredibly dynamic, this magnetic field of the sun. And so as you get more and more sunspots, because they're so intertwined with magnetic craziness just before the magnetic field kind of goes ah and flips over you get all these sunspots that appear so this is why we have sunspots that are associated with increasing maxima they only appear in certain parts of the sun don't they like between the, the mid-latitude bands yes and then as they age they tend to move towards the equator yeah yeah you're absolutely right and they're only ever temporary. So they yes. only last from days to months. They're not permanent features. And they actually can expand and contract as they move across the surface of the sun. They can get as big as Neptune. Yeah, so they can be 16 kilometres to 160,000 kilometres, yeah. which is huge. The diameter of Earth is 12,742 kilometres. 
And some of these sunspots have been known to get up to 160,000 kilometres. That's a lot. Yeah. Another really cool <laughs> thing about them is if you took a typical sized sunspot and stood it in the night sky, it would be 10 times brighter than the full moon. I mean, that's because it's 3,000 Kelvin. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so basically the sun just ties itself in knots and eventually so many magnetic field lines get crossed that the magnetic field of the whole sun reverses. But essentially, this conveyor belt, this convection cycle drags down old sunspots. The corpses are dragged down, right down to like 200,000 kilometres below the surface, and then the heat heats them up again, and then they can actually float back up to the surface, and it's this big process of renewal. You get these sunspots, but in association with the sunspots, you also get these absolutely beautiful things called prominences, which are big looping things of material, which travel on magnetic field lines. So remember, these are all charged particles that get splurted out from the surface of the sun. Not splurted enough that they're actually leaving the sun, but they curl back on themselves. The solar flares and things like that. Yeah, so solar yeah. flares are radiation. Yeah. So we've talked about prominences. So they go back onto the sun. They fall back onto the sun. But solar flares themselves precede what you mentioned before, which is coronal mass ejections. Mass ejections so yeah. yeah, so we detect the flare before we get the coronal mass ejections. So the solar flares come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. We have different classes of flares based on how energetic they are. We get super flares, which are super, <laughs> extra strong flares. They're the ones from the 70s that people used to wear, super flares. Super flare. Super flare. <laughs> She's super flary. Yes. You get these solar flares, which are ejection of energy. So what happened at the end of last year was a solar flare called an X1, which is the most intense kind. It wasn't super flary, <laughs> but it was actually still quite energetic. And then typically associated with the solar flare, you get a coronal mass ejection. You've got this magnetic field line curving out from the surface of the sun, and sometimes these charged particles can travel on these lines. And if they fall back, their prominences like we talked about. But if they don't, fall back if they've got enough energy so for example when the sun's really active they can get spat out into space at very 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 fast speeds very fast very like fast super speeds. Like fast 11 million kilometers an hour they normally take about 48 to 72 hours to arrive from the sun to earth yep. A solar flare is travelling at the speed of light because it's energy. But these coronal mass ejections are a bit slower and they take between 48 to 72 hours to arrive. But you're right, they can come a lot faster than that. And at the end of last year, we actually had a couple of slow-moving ones. And then after that, there was another one emitted that was super fast-moving and it actually overtook the two in front and they called it the Cannibal CME. Because <laughs> it ate the other ones up on its way. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the cool thing about CMEs is when the sun's acting, you get like five a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've got heaps of little things watching the sun that can actually detect the emission of these CMEs. And obviously they're not really going to hurt us on Earth if we're nowhere near that direction. Unless we're in line. Yeah. In terms of the things that are watching the sun, you've got SOHO, which is the Heliospherical Observatory, but you've also got a bunch of other satellites that just sit there and basically watch the sun. Stereo A and B are two spacecraft. They were launched in 2006 and they basically sit in two different points and look at the sun, right? And yep. there's some amazing footage that you can watch of the stereo spacecraft's vision of the sun and one of them basically sees a CME coming and then suddenly the whole display is just lit up with these charged particles smashing into it. So that was Stereo A. So that was in 2012 in our last solar maximum, which was tipped to be a really big one. I don't know if you remember the movie 2012 
how it was based on the mind predictions and all that yes, sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this is where people are like, oh, doom and gloom, solar cycle, maximum, 2012, blah, blah, blah. We did actually have some big CME events and Stereo A was sitting there staring at the sun, the poor thing. And then, yeah, big CME just basically just boom. went boom and smashed into it. <laughs> and you can actually watch this poor spacecraft's vision of this incoming solar storm. That solar storm was the same strength as what's known as the Carrington event, which we'll talk about in a minute. But basically, Earth wasn't in the path of it, but stereo was. It wasn't harmed. Don't worry, it's okay. Can handle it. Pretty amazing vision to just see this oncoming rush of particles and just watch it being like, ah! <laughs> which brings us up to, Mark, I think it's about time that we did shit. You. Should. No. Because you should. Absolutely should. So we just mentioned at the end of the last segment the Carrington event, mm. and that is one of the major times that we have experienced space weather on Earth. And as I said before, you know, Stereo A saw a solar storm and it basically smacked it in the face, and it was the same size as the Carrington event, but we were not in the path. Can you imagine what would happen if we were? Poof. It would be scary. Yeah, it absolutely would. Absolutely. So what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about space weather. Oh, there's no weather in space. There's no air in space. There's no water in space, blah, blah, blah. Wrong. There is water in space. There's molecules in space in the cold areas, but that's not what we're talking about. Well, spaceweather.live.com would beg to differ that there's no space weather. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, any astronaut looking to do any spacewalks yeah, needs to know. know. And when the sun is particularly active and when we are expecting solar storms, we typically don't let the astronauts out to do any sort of spacewalks. We shut down and satellites actually need to have protection yeah. from space weather. So it's a real thing. It is. And do you know how many sunspots are on the sun at the moment? Talking about space weather. No, tell me. 14 right now that I'm looking at on the uh, spaceweatherlive.com. Oh, that's so cool. Is it a plot or is it a picture? Uh, it's a picture and they're all plotted with oh, cool. the numbers. They've all been given their designations. Yeah. And it's also yeah, suggesting cool. that there is a possibility of aurora to appear in Iqalit, Nuuk and Reykjavik. So let's talk about space weather for a sec. Yep. Space weather is mostly caused by the sun. So we do have other things that cause cosmic rays and charged particles in space, some random processes, but the sun is basically putting out charged particles all the time in the solar wind. So that's just basically ionizing radiation which can affect us when we're in space and weather down satellites. You do actually have to have some protection just from that constant barrage. But the space weather we're really interested in at the moment is things like solar flares and things like CMEs. So we mentioned before that solar flares are basically radiation. So usually, you know, X-rays and high energy wavelengths, and they typically won't affect us on Earth at all. We're protected by our various layers of atmosphere and magnetics up there. So that's really, really helpful. And likewise with the CMEs with charged particles, we're mostly not affected. But basically, yeah, when the sun has a solar flare with all this intense energy, if you're in the way and you have instruments up there or humans that are exposed to high energy x-rays that aren't supposed to be, it can be quite dangerous. Mm. But the worst part is these CMEs, these coronal mass ejections, which are huge blobs of charged material that get spat out from the sun and then speed away from the surface of the sun. They're the ones we're really worried about right here. So it takes about 45,000 simultaneous chest x-rays to kill that's you. A lot. <laughs> that's if you a wanted lot. to die by a chest x-rays, you'd need to have about 45,000 at the same time. Click. 
Now, a CME-driven shockwave can bombard astronauts outside of Earth's protective magnetosphere, so not in low Earth orbit. Outside, outside, Let's outside. Let's say they were going yep. to the moon or Mars or whatever. If they're out there and they happen to experience a CME-driven shockwave, yep. right, which is when it's speeding away from the sun, that can deliver as much radiation as 300,000 chest x-rays. Yeah, Gonski instantly. Yeah, so the CMEs are something that we are really interested in being able to predict. Well, if we want to get to Mars and if we want to set up stuff on the moon, we're going to need to have that information at hand and know how to protect ourselves. Absolutely, because Mars and the moon don't really have the same magnetic protection that Earth has. You're right. So we need to see that. But it's not just that. It can also completely screw with satellite communications, satellite circuitry systems. And in fact, even on Earth, it can affect our transformers, long grids of power, such as some of the ones that go across mainland USA, and also cause radio blackouts. So you get these solar storms and then those particles will then cause what's called a, a geomagnetic storm. And you end up with all these things on Earth that start failing. You know, GPS doesn't work. Phone signals don't work. Radio waves are all interrupted. So that's space weather causing real effects to us on the surface of Earth, but also potentially real hazards to anybody in space. So do you know much about the Carrington event? I know a little bit about the Carrington event. I know when it was. It was 1859. It was pretty big. I say pretty big. It was the most intense geomagnetic storm that we've ever had or recorded. Mm. And it created aurora displays that were reported all over the Earth, like yeah, everywhere. that's right. Caused the very limited telegraph systems that we had back then to spark and catch fire in multiple areas around the world. Yeah, it actually caught pieces of paper on fire from the telegraph and also shocked some of the telegraph operators. Oh, wow. That'd be a bit of a surprise. <laughs> like you think the sun's just there kind of like shining away merrily, but actually to be electrically shocked because of a solar storm is just something I wouldn't think about. And that was back in 1859, yeah. right? So now imagine the dependence we have, our technology, how dependent we are on electrical systems and radio systems and, and electromagnetics, how dependent we are on all of those things. Yeah. And then hit that with a solar storm Bang. of that size. Yeah. trouble. A lot of Bit of trouble. So just on the auroras, you know, they saw them in Mexico and the Caribbean. It's just unreal. It's stunning, isn't it? We're thinking, oh, northwestern Victoria, but this is it's like getting on to the equator. And do you know how much warning we get? Three or four days. 30 minutes. 30 minutes? Yeah. 30 minutes. Yeah. And that's why NASA's <laughs> monitoring the sun 24-7. You're looking for changes in the sun, number of sunspots and what we were talking about before, looking for signals in the atmosphere that change. We measure the magnetic field outside of Earth. We've got spacecraft in space that sit there and measure changes in magnetic field because that's basically how we know it depresses the magnetic field of Earth or interacts with the magnetic fields around, right? So we can go, oh, oh something's happening. We also measure the solar wind plasma just to see if it's going up and down and we're constantly trying to work out how to predict these things and this is one of my favorite things there's a group that's been formed fairly recently called swag swag <laughs> which stands for space weather advisory group they got some swag those guys <laughs> and their whole job basically is to try to build our understanding of and capabilities to predict back on the carrington event yes. get this the carrington event had two coronal mass ejections right so two whole blobs of charged particles that the Earth just happened to be in the path of at the time. <laughs> and the second CME, coronal mass ejection, was so bad that the geomagnetic storm, so the sort of rush of charged particles going around in the Earth's magnetic field, which is called a geomagnetic storm, that disintegrated, broke apart 5% of the Earth's ozone layer. <laughs> and that's what supercharged those telegraph wires as well. So so we're talking about planes falling from the sky? Well, I mean, you're talking about really disrupting a lot of electrical systems, yep. navigation systems, 
systems. I mean, Lyft is still going to work. Satellites are going to be pretty screwed. We'd have to do our best to make sure that what we could protect, we protected, which is why we really need to get better at detecting and predicting these flares. There's actually been quite a few different geomagnetic storms over the last couple of hundred years that are of note. But generally, you don't need to be too concerned. We are pretty protected on Earth with our magnetic field and all that sort of stuff. It's really as we start to push the boundaries of space exploration that it becomes a bit of a problem. And also as we increase the number of satellites that we have out in further orbits around the Earth, miles from Earth's protective magnetic layer, we find on average there's about a 4% chance of at least one severe storm per year and a 0.7% chance of a Carrington-class storm per year. So it doesn't sound that likely, but it's not that unlikely. So it's still a small mm. chance. Mm. Then there's 1967 was the solar flare just at the Cold War. Nearly changed the course of American history. Oh, that'd be a bit scary, wouldn't it? What happened with that one? So in 1967, there was a solar flare. This solar flare basically jammed the US radar and radio communications. And they thought it was Russia? And they thought it was the Soviets and they almost ordered an airstrike. Oh, God. No. So there could have been a lot of things a little bit different, you know, Yeah, and then there was one in 1972. It was right towards the end of the space race, or the the first space race, I guess, where there was a solar flare of X-20, which is pretty big, Mm. right? Because X-1 is the one that we saw at the end of last year that everyone got excited about. This one was X-20. It affected space near Earth and the moon. It reached Earth in 14.6 hours. That's half a day. (laughs) Super, super fast. (laughs) It interrupted TV signals. It detonated US Navy mines during the Vietnam War. (laughs) If the astronauts had been on the moon, this would have killed them. Oh, gosh. But it occurred between Apollo 16 and 17. Yeah, I was reading about that. Yeah, tell me about the 1989 one. It's boring compared to those ones. (laughs) It collapsed the Hydro-Quebec power network. Oh, wow. Yeah, and caused transformer failures and led to a nine-hour blackout that affected six million people people that happened on march 13th but the cme was ejected from the sun on march yeah 9th. wow and it was so intense that they saw aurora borealis in texas and florida yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were halloween solar storms and solar flares in 2003 in 2001 there was a massive solar flare that hurled a 7.2 million kilometer per hour cme into space At that time, it was the biggest X-ray solar flare recorded, which was X-20, and if Earth had been there, it wouldn't have been great. So obviously it went off in a different direction from Earth. Yeah, so actually the most recent one, apart from last year, so it was in 2017, we had an X-class solar flare, which was an X9.3. It was the strongest flare of solar cycle 24, which was the previous one, which ended in 2019, triggered a category R3, which is strong radio blackout, and the NOAA later reported that high-frequency radio used by aviation, maritime, ham radio and other emergency bands was unavailable for up to eight hours that day. Sorry, you've got an emergency. <laughs> Don't just bother calling. <laughs> We're unavailable. Send <laughs> And that was the same day that Category 5 Hurricane Irma oh, was passing through the both ways, huh? Send pigeon. Hurricane kills pigeon. It gives a whole new meaning to the word perfect storm. Good movie, that. <laughs> I think that's it. I think we're done. Other than thanking everyone for tuning in again, our next episode will be us interviewing Diego Colonello, the Venezuelan with the very sexy accent. Ooh, well, I can't wait to speak to Diego with the the Venezuelan accent. So Diego, of course, is a telescope whiz? He is. He's an engineering whiz, really. Wow. Whether it's electrical engineering or whether it's just general engineering, the man just creates things out of nothing. So if you do want to have a sneak peek at our guest 
for January, go on to Instagram and check out Diego Colonello, D-I-E-G-O-C-O-L-O-N-N-E-L-L-O. And you'll see some of the most amazing astrophotography work out there. And a cocky. And a cocky. Thanks for listening and supporting us as we continue to learn on our podcast journey. If you'd like to contribute to the podcast and be like Steve, we could always do with another subscriber. We're also working hard to get our online shop sorted so you can pick up some awesome spaghettification merch. You can find links to our shop and Patreon on our website at www.spaghettification.com.au. If you'd like your business featured on our episodes, hit us up at spaghettificationpodcast at gmail.com or follow the links to contact us through our website.